Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Stephen Wakeling, the founder and CEO of Phobio, the premier trade-in service for mobile operators and consumer electronics brands in North America and three-time Inc. 5000 member. Stephen founded Phobio in 2010 with his friends Drew and Denny. After a long career developing disruptive tech-powered services, specifically in the wireless buyback space, journalist by trade and techie by heart, Stephen has been obsessed with building things better since his days at Michigan State and later Harvard Business School. Today, Stephen is laser-focused on building Phobio to be the most transparent and trustworthy company in the trade-in space. But in true entrepreneurial fashion, Stephen is also a writer and council member for Forbes magazine, on the board at We Are Rosie, and has launched another new company, Company Rodeo. Stephen, you are an Atlanta Tech legend, and we are so excited to have you on the podcast, my friend. Thank you. So glad to be here. Yeah. Welcome, Yes, Steve. sir. Uh, so tell me this. One, before we even get into exactly what the business is and how it works, because uh, I'm super fascinated by that, I'd love just to know a little bit of the backstory of how you either thought of, came to, uh, the series of events that led to you starting Phobio. Yeah, I mean, I, I never really thought that I, I would kind of be an entrepreneur, though I think now when I look back, kind of hindsight being what it is, it seems like it was a pretty obvious choice. Um, I, you know, had gone to school for journalism and I kind of thought that I was going to end up being like a local news producer or like a comedy writer, like, you know, David Letterman or whatever, it was going to be definitely one of those two things. Right. Um, and so when I got out of school, I ended up having, uh, kind of some, uh, you know, interesting kind of, uh, jobs that had nothing to do with that. And, and it, uh, like I started, you know, podcasting was starting to become a thing. And I, and I would attribute kind of early podcasts back when like Facebook was a startup kind of thing. Those early days yeah. when like this week in tech and those kind of podcasts, I would spend a lot of time listening to them and kind of becoming more interested in like startup culture, which mm. ended up leading me to kind of be so fascinated by it that I felt like I needed to get involved. And I, you know, drove out to California with some friends and just wanted to get a job at any startup. Uh, yeah. and, and just basically wanted to experience what was happening in kind of startup culture. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like a, a roundabout way to get there. And then once I kind of got there, I realized like, you know, this is something I really want to do for myself. And like my, uh, my next reasonable step was like, I want to start something that, that I can continue that can survive. Um, and kind of, you know, that early startup culture, you know, it's helped me understand that like, even though the bar of survival seems from the outside, like it's, uh, so low, like all you have to do is continue. And it's like, it's hard to do. And uh, yes. I think, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it was so uh, fascinating. So when you got there around, around what time or like, when was that? Was this during the, like, the dot-com era or what? Post.com. So um, this would have been kind of in the late 2000s. So this would have been kind of like 2005, 6, 7, 8, I think, you know, was kind of like when I was working with different startups in, in California, mostly in LA. I, I kind of grew up all over the place. Um, and for when I was in high school, uh, first couple of years of high school, I lived in Northern California, and that would have been in like the late 90s. So I was kind of bookended California's kind of dot com 
boom um, there. Uh, but um, I was, you know, very familiar with California and like what was going on in, in Northern California. It just hap- so happened that a friend of mine had an apartment in Southern California. So it was kind of like, eh, it seemed like close enough. And I was going to try to eventually like work my way North, which never ended up happening. I ended up kind of leaving LA after about a year and going to like places like New Orleans and Hong Kong that have, you know, like less uh, startup culture, but um, some interesting stuff going on anyway. Yeah. So you, you hop in a car, you say, I want to be a part of the yeah. startup scene, yep. move out to California. What does that end up, tra- what does that end up translating to for you? Well, I ended up getting a job, just like didn't even really care where I worked. I was just looking for a job at a startup. And I found a startup uh, in the apartment was in Palos Verdes, California. And if you're familiar with like kind of L.A. geography, it's kind of, uh, you know, Hermosa Beach, Torrance, uh, that kind of south of LAX. And so I was looking for something that I could do in that area. And I found this weird little startup. I didn't even fully understand what they did when I went down to kind of yes. uh, knock on the door and ask if I could work there. Um, and uh, they, but it, you know, it turned out they they were trying to do this weird thing called trade in. Um, and uh, they were uh, early stage. It was uh, it was they at the time. I want to say they had like less than five million dollars in sales, and they had a couple handful of employees that were still. You know, they had, their mom was working as a receptionist and covering HR and they had some cousins working there. It was like that kind of friends and family stage. Right. Um, so, uh, and I was just kind of like interested to do everything. I went in and said, Hey, I, uh, I'll write press releases. Uh, I'll do marketing stuff for you guys. I'll, you guys seem to have a warehouse. I'll sweep your warehouse. I don't really care. I just, I don't really care what I'm doing. I just kind of want to be in and around a startup that I don't have to commute 90 minutes on the freeway too. Sure, uh, yeah. And they uh, hired me that day. Uh, and, uh, I ended up working there for a couple of years. Um, uh, in uh, this really weird job title that they kind of carved out for me after a few weeks uh, called the X Factor. And my uh, job yeah. dis- the job description, I remember getting a little <laughs> sheet of paper, the job title X Factor, job description, uh, find problems and solve them by whatever means necessary, which yes. I thought was just like the broadest possible mandate. Uh, yeah. And I took full advantage of it. I, you know, yes. basically kind of like, I didn't really, really report to anybody. It was kind of like dotted line to the CEO. Um, and I got to, you know, essentially to play like, you know, uh, armchair CEO for a little while and kind of wow. be in the rooms when he was making decisions. And I could, you know, I never thought I would work there very long. It was all, I felt like it was, a, I was like, I was more like an embedded journalist at a startup than an employee there. Mm. So I felt very free to have like contrarian opinions and completely disagree while everybody else was like really drinking the startup Kool-Aid and like fully agreeing with whatever was going on. I would be like, I think this is stupid, but Hey, you know, whatever, it's your company. (laughs) And uh, So there was, I definitely got this advantage to say like, I, I could, I could express my opinions, but since I didn't really have any authority, they were going in whatever direction they were going. And then I could be like, you know, six months later being like, ah, oh, it turns out like I was wrong or I was right or whatever. So it was a great training ground for a startup uh, a CEO to kind of, you know, dabble in everything, not have a ton of responsibility, get comfortable with failure and being wrong. And also like, since I had no authority, the only way that I could get anything done was by building coalitions kind of through interpersonal relationships. So like, if I felt like there was some cool thing that we could do on the web, or if I wanted to change the way that we were doing our packaging or something like that, I would have to convince a bunch of people just through just like, you know, campaigning in a way that it was like, Hey, I think this is a really good idea. Just hear me out. 
I know that this, no one asked you to do this, but like, I think we, so um, it was helpful for, especially for a bootstrapped CEO to, you know, essentially just have to, you know, convince everybody for no good reason why they should listen to you. Um, so yeah, it was, so it was what great. were, so you, you go from listening to podcasts, probably reading some books about the startup scene, you drive out yeah. there, you're actually mm -hmm. a part of a startup. Yeah. What, what were the biggest aha moments or lessons that you learned in that initial i'm actually here i'm i'm, I'm a part of one i'm seeing how it operates yeah. it's uh when you look back on that what were some of the critical lessons you observed or learned while you're there well it was really um i think kind of any startup can be very infectious and in this place was kind of no different um it was disorganized uh they were not doing everything right it was very small they didn't have a ton of funding so they didn't have like a rock star board or anybody so it was very kind of early stage and it was very messy and um for something about that kind of like I found really appealing that you didn't have to start out with this rigid business plan and this execution strategy that was going to go like clockwork for you to be successful. Um, it was like, I really, they really opened my eyes to the idea that, you know, you could kind of head in a direction and kind of figure things out as yeah. you went along, which was just such a valuable lesson. And I think that was, a, a I thought, Prior to that experience, I would have thought that I would have had to spend six months with a business plan and think about every possible thing that could go wrong and figure out how to mitigate each one of those things. And like, I think like watching those guys and working with those guys certainly gave me the confidence that you could just have a good idea, dive in and kind of figure a lot of things out as you go along um, cool. and, and get comfortable with some of them being bad ideas and not working. And you just have to kind of, um, you know, deal with it and move on. So that, that was, yeah. it was really freeing, I think. Yeah. Uh, and certainly gave me the confidence that I could do it after I worked with those guys. Yeah, man. And to me, that's the game. Like if you had yeah. to think about like a game is like, can you, can you survive long enough to figure it out? Yep. Yeah. You almost, have to, you almost have to know I'm going to be wrong about a, a assumption that I brought into this initial business plan or this initial market approach or whatever yeah. And can I find a way to survive while I'm also figuring out some pretty key lessons, you yep. know what I mean, along the way? Yeah. And if you can, well, then it's a successful business. If you can't, you know, you, you have to start over in a sense. Yeah. Go, go find a job. That's right. And I, that, that's kind of what I did. I, I um, left. This is a crazy story. But um, so I ended up feeling like I'd learned everything that I needed to learn. My wife, or my girlfriend at the time, now wife, was going to graduate school in New Orleans. I wanted to be closer to her. And this was like 2006, seven. New Orleans. This is like very early post Katrina. There was a lot of rebuilding. And so I, uh, you know, told the guys in California that I was quitting and I moved out to, uh, to, you know, just basically told them on a Friday afternoon, Hey, I'm leaving. They're like, when are you leaving? I was like, today. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and then I was like, I'll, I'll, don't worry. I'll, I'll like, you know, close all the loops and stuff, but I'm not going to be in the office anymore. And so they were like, dude, whatever, just go to uh, new Orleans and work from there. We'll figure it all out. Um, and so, uh, I had already gotten a job at the, at the zoo at New Orleans and they were just had reopened. They were rehiring a handful of people. They had like 400 people. Hold on. Three star. Hold on. Yeah. 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 Hold, hold on. Why, <laughs> why, why did you get a job at the zoo? You're I just in a startup. Yeah. It was like, it was like <laughs> any job will do. And I was like, I, I work at the X Factor. 
yeah and so i it, it was the it was the craziest thing ever and i this will probably be a little bit of a, a view into like how i operate but so i was literally like i decided i was leaving i had an apartment in california i it, the lease was coming up and so i decided i was like i'm i'm a month away from leaving so i didn't renew and i made a deal with a friend of mine that i could live on a, in a pup tent on his patio <laughs> yes. for like 100 bucks a month so yes. I remember I would just be in like, I'd get up at like 5 a.m. I'd go down to the Equinox down, I'd shower down there. And I would just like basically like homeless at this point. Um, and then I would go into the Whole Foods at 6 a.m. And I would just be like pounding out resumes trying to find out. And then like I'd come back from work at like 9 p.m. And I'd be like seeing what a people had responded to. And so I was sitting in my tent looking on like the New Orleans Cra Craigslist. And I found this job for this marketing coordinator. They, but they needed somebody who could do everything. They were like, it was like one man band. And own yes. no structure, challenged environment, you know, and I was like, whoa, that sounds like me. So, okay, uh, at I, least it was in marketing. In my head, I yes. thought you were like sweeping cages at the zoo. Okay, whatever problems so show up within the lines, then like this is the X factor. Yeah, <laughs> well, send the X factor in. I know, bring him in. That was definitely, I don't know if they felt like that, but I felt like uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, the uh, so I fired off this email to this email address in on Craigslist, and the, the email was uh, basically, "Hey, I'm in love with this girl, and she's in New Orleans, and I need to be there too. Hopefully, I can get this job. Here's my resume." That was literally the cover letter. I sent it. I immediately regretted it, and I thought, "Well, you know, there's a bit more fish in the sea. You know, another job will come up." And like, lo and behold, like a few hours later, I got this email back that was like, "We would love to meet you. Can you be in New Orleans in like two days?" <laughs> so I was like, "Yeah, no problem." <laughs> So I flew out there and I met with this guy who would become my business partner, Denny Juge. And uh, he basically was like, uh, we, 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 I remember we met in this conference room. It was a zoo and a, um, an aquarium. And so they had this conference room that was at the back of this massive fish tank that literally had like sharks and stuff swimming around <laughs> in it. So we met in that conference room. It was like a Bond villain conference room. And he uh, interviewed me. I met with some other people and they basically just said, you're hired. Um, so I went back, got my stuff and, uh, told the guys in California, like I was leaving and, uh, drove out to, to, uh, to do this job. But when I got to new Orleans, I, they, I, they, these guys in California had extended, given me even more freedom, <laughs> do whatever you want, work from wherever you want and we'll figure it out. And so, uh, and they gave me a raise, I think too. It was like unbelievable. <laughs> so, um, the, uh, the, yeah, I told, I told this guy, Denny, Hey dude, sorry, I'm not going to be able to do this job. These guys in California are crazy. They're giving me more money, whatever. And he was like, look, this job isn't that hard. You should do both. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> well, I, he's like, you're going to need a place to work from. He's like, just work from our office and, you know, just do both jobs at the same time. Uh, and uh, I was like, okay, I'll give, I, and I told my girlfriend, now wife, like, I'll do this for like a month and see how it goes. And, uh, and I was like, it seems impossible. And I ended up doing that for like two and a half years where wow. I was working for both That's companies nice. at the same time. And I would like structure my day so that I would do all of the stuff for the zoo, like kind of 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then it was kind of like West Coast. People are starting to come online. And then I would work two to nine. And just we didn't have kids at the time. It was she, my wife was in grad school. So it was just like I was just working all the time. And that was just <laughs> was fine. And I ended up basically saving up what ended up being my nest egg that I could use to start Fobio uh, during wow. that period. Yeah. Come on. yeah, it was it was ridiculous. But I got to work at this place that was more structured. They had, they were kind of like, a, you know, they had hundreds of employees. They had like 
you know, and so I got to have this view of a completely different kind of business during this time where they had like, you know, actually goals and they had projects that were like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And like, they were trying to get sponsorship from oil companies like Shell and whatever. And so like, it was a completely, it it was the pretty, pretty much the only experience I've ever had. in like, what I would say is like a a larger company that has like, you know, structure and stuff. So it it ended up being a pretty valuable experience in its own right. Absolutely. You start to see the pieces coming together now, obviously with Denny, with going from the startup disorganized scene, yet yeah. something's to it, to yeah. more of the structured approach, that kind of thing. You mentioned Hong Kong. Yeah. How did you get how did you get to Hong Kong next? Well, so I feel like, you know, this is this seems ridiculous in that time, but my wife was finishing graduate school. Um, I already kind of had an eye that I was going to be returning to this kind of uh, this mobile device trading business. It seemed like the early entrants were too early. I had been watching the space. I had already left the company in California and I was kind of looking to do my next thing. I had a, a job offer uh, for a you know, large tech company that I didn't really want to take. And so I kind of like finagled that they would, uh, the guys at Microsoft could potentially like hire me later if I came back, if this didn't work out. So I was kind of in this in-between stage and my, we had an, I, I thought that like Asian markets were going to be really important to this. And like, uh, I wanted to set up something in Hong Kong that would allow us to have like kind of a foothold into the market. And it seemed like it was going to be a good time. This was like, um, you know, like, you know, uh, Obama timeframe, you know, world geopolitical situation. And so I felt like it was pretty advantaged time to be engaging in, in that. And so like, literally I told my, I was in Hong Kong checking this stuff out. And I uh, had a Skype conversation back when people use Skype for this kind of thing uh, with my wife, who had just gotten married. And uh, I said, man, I'm going to be having to come here a lot. We should probably just get an apartment and like live here for a while. And so I don't even remember the conversation. When I got back, my wife was like, hey, I got a job lined up in Hong Kong uh, teaching there. I'm going to do uh, like we, our lease is up in like three months. So let's just go ahead and put our stuff in storage and just go there. So um, that's what we did. And it, it seemed like a crazy, wow. it was either going to be an adventure that like we would be glad that we did before we had children or, it, it, you know, it was, you know, that was like, that was the, the worst case scenario. And like the best case scenario is that, you know, we would establish an office there and a trading desk and be getting a lot of information from various different global markets. And it seemed like it was, you know, if this phobia thing took off, that would be a really handy thing to have in our pocket mm-hmm. but um the, the so reality phobia, was, phobia yeah. was in was currently in your head at this point yeah we probably didn't really even have a name for it but certainly like denny and drew and i were kind of like working on it as a as a kind of um you know this could be something you know mm. let's let's it was like it became an after school project we had had a bunch of after school projects that was like i remember one of them was called branderator which was like a is like a website that would just apply any brand you could just like it was basically like ai i think it was just mainly just like we we're just pulling random images and putting words on top of it like you could just get a brand in like 10 seconds and you know, <laughs> print it on a t-shirt uh and uh so this was like where we'd become so disillusioned by marketing that we felt like it didn't matter anymore and it's just like you know who cares what's on your business card if your product sucks um so uh yeah we did that and like we did a company called classy putty these were like guaranteed to fail like we didn't even care if they failed we just thought it'd be funny to have like a uh, like I think classy putty's big gimmick was you could get like a carafe of, of silly putty essentially, but uh, it was, you know, there was nothing silly about this putty. Yes. You could have it color matched to your Maybach and whatever. 
And like, we would almost be like scared when people would buy it. Like, oh my God, people like, they didn't realize it was kind of a joke and they're actually trying to buy a classy putty. Um, so like phobia started as something like that, where it was like, I bet we could do it, you know? And like, yeah. it was like, it was nobody ever really saw it like as being like a thing that we would all be employed by at some point. It was just kind of like a fun thing to try out, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, definitely at the time that I was going on Hong Kong, it, it had kind of progressed past that. We had probably had a beta site running and I, we had already probably had some devices coming in and I was like looking for, you know, distribution solutions, but it definitely didn't feel like a job. It felt like a hobby still. Um, yeah. and then it was like, it was a, basically we were like, Hey, we got to do something. And we looked at doing renewable energy. I spent a bunch the reason I'd gone to China too, is I was like, you know, interviewing, um, uh, like photovoltaic manufacturers. And I had gotten a, a Michigan factory to agree that if I could source, uh, you know, uh, solar cells, they would put them into select roofing products. And I could, you know, market those as like a really small application kind of solar thing. So like, it, we kind of were like had two or three things that we were thinking about doing. And um, it basically came down to a conversation with the three of us where we just decided we didn't want to get venture capital. And, uh, and I said, well, the only thing that wouldn't require venture capital would be this crazy little trade-in business. Cause yeah. if we get the timing right, we can kind of grow it organically. And then that, that literally, it was like, uh, 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 that was, that was it. That was like, okay. And then we all just turned our focus to that one little idea. All the others kind of fell aside and, we just kind of focused on phobia for, I think we gave ourselves a year to, to see if it would work uh, for real. And uh, luckily it did. Wow. Yeah. So what did you, so tell me about yourself and the, the two other founders, uh, Drew and Denny. What were the three kind of, if you had to say, this is what I'm bringing, this is what he's bringing, this is what he's bringing. What were kind of the, the, the contributions, even just like the team contributions behavioral contributions, not even necessarily specific resources, but like, yeah, what were the unique abilities that everybody kind of brings to the table at that time that were helpful? Yeah, well, I think um, so it's, it's a pretty easy division. So uh, Drew and I have known each other forever and ever. Um, he was actually my little brother's best friend in high school. And so he, I was just like always the uncool older brother, but I knew that he was a really talented um, developer, backend developer, and also had a lot of really strong front end kind of UI chops. So even as like a 19 year old, I was thinking like, man, that wow. guy, I gotta keep, well, I gotta say, see what we, we gotta do something. And so yeah. during college, like I think, you know, he would, he would build websites, I would sell websites, and we kind of developed this kind of thing where, you know, it was a lot of like Western Michigan manufacturers that were making like coat hangers and stuff. And they were, in, we would we would do their first website for them for, I mean, thousands of dollars, it was pretty cheap. So, um, and then uh, Drew would build it, I would sell it and do some kind of copywriting and stuff. So we had a, this kind of already this dynamic where I was the sales guy and he was the tech guy. Um, and I think uh, Drew is very, uh, he's very, um, he's got impeccable taste and he has a really good eye for design. Um, and when he's building yeah. stuff, he's a good architect as well. So he's yeah. kind of a really complete kind of one man band. And then like, I would just, you know, like he, I know that he's going to build quality stuff and I, and, and I am, you know, a, 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 I am enough of a technologist to identify that. And then like, they, I'm nothing else technical. I'm allowed to touch. Um, so, uh, and then Denny kind of came in and he has, he is incredibly creative. He has a really strong marketing background. And so he basically was like, you know, supporting, but he's also a, a, a developer as well. 
So he kind of uh, was kind of the uh, covered the middle ground for whatever was going on. He would be helping me like design training or, you know, like posters and do all the things that we needed to do to get the, uh, the um, product to market. And then also kind of like working with Drew on kind of UI design and kind of like filling in as like a, a kind of a junior developer on that on Drew's team in the early days. So awesome. it was a really tight team uh, that allowed us to do um, kind of big things fast, which was yeah. kind of what we like to do. That's awesome. So I'm curious, help, help me understand uh, what the business model is for Fobio. Like what, it, what yeah. did the company end up be, being basically? Yeah. So kind of like the primary kind of like a value proposition is we are helping unlock the value in consumers gadgets. So it's their, their phones and their iPads and their Apple watches and their, their MacBooks and whatever other technology they may have, basically allowing them to buy something new while using instant credit that we unlock in the value of that device. Just like you can kind of go to any car dealership and you can trade in kind of any car as long as it has value. Uh, we we want to enable the same thing so that you can buy new technology and leverage the value that you have in your old technology. Ah. And so it's this kind of like new normal, you know, like no, no one's buying their, you know, unless you're, you know, 12 or 13, you're, you've got a phone to trade in, you've got a MacBook or a laptop or a tablet or a, a wearable. And like these kind of categories are, are, um, are not very new very often. And so uh, we can help people uh, do that by working with manufacturers like Apple or Motorola or the carriers like AT&T and Verizon uh, to, to integrate into their systems so that when they sell a new device, they can use our secondary market values to uh, kind of basically, you know, get instant credit or you get a gift card after purchase or you can get a... a um, you know, a promotional uh, value associated with whatever you currently have in your pocket or on your desk. Um, so the business model for us is pretty simple. We work directly with these kind of beloved brands um, to, to make sure that we are delivering an experience of the trade-in experience that is, you know, elevates them. And then like certainly in the case of Apple and some of these, it's definitely, it was a high bar to be able to sure, make sure that we we're kind of delivering a great experience. And then we get the devices. Um, we do some, some kind of light refurbishment, uh, make sure, prepare them for the right secondary market. So whether it's going to an insurance company and it's being used as a device that will go back on a claim, whether it's going to a wholesaler who may be um, refurbished and sending off to education or other kind of a, you know, mm. a secondary markets, um, or it may be, you know, some of our devices may be going off to, uh, um, you know, secondary markets like eBay or Amazon, and then people are kind of buying them as kind of scratch and dent devices. Um, and then a whole, you know, a lot of our devices are go to uh, developing nations. Like, you know, whether it be India or uh, China or Africa, and people are kind of picking up technology that is kind of two or three years old um, for, uh, you know, a, a more affordable price point. Oh, amazing. So are you guys mostly getting those uh, secondhand gadgets from like Verizon or from Apple themselves? Or would like a personal customer like me yeah. bring my phone to you guys and get paid for that? Like, what's the... Yeah, it well, it it, uh, it depends, but mostly it's that exactly thing. So you're kind of interacting with us. So like 
you may go to a, a website where you're going to buy something new or into a store where you're going to buy something new. Um, and so if you, if it's the you know web option, um, you're buying something new, you're telling uh, them what you've got. And then like we're, our systems are essentially dispatching a box. Uh, it's coming to your house. You're putting your device in the box and shipping it back. And like, we're kind of facilitating, even though you may have gotten instant credit at the time of purchase, ah. like if you don't send in your device, you, you may kind of see a couple hundred bucks, whatever, drop off your credit card or whatever, or be charged your credit card if you don't send it in. So if you go to a store, obviously they're not giving you a box. They'll may collect your device and then they ship it directly to us. And, you know, once a week, a bunch of a hundred laptops or whatever. God, that's brilliant. Well done, buddy. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's well been a done. fun business. And I think, you know, like it's easy for us to be passionate about it because, you know, like we really kind of feel like it's not just like we're not selling widgets. You know, we are we're actively trying to help people get the, every bit of useful life out of their yeah. gadget. You know, like I am going to upgrade to the iPhone 12 Pro and my iPhone 11 is going to go off to somebody immediately and they're going to start using it like it's uh, new to them. Yes. Uh, and they'll and and I'm sure you know like we like to work specifically with brands who have products that are kind of built well and have a lot of longevity. Um, like I love I drive a Land Toyota Land Cruiser, and I just love the fact that they'll be in the United States for till they have 250 thousand miles, and then they end up being shipped to Africa they're, or wherever. They're not going to be in a crusher someplace, and so we really they like have to another work with 10 years of life over there. Exactly. So yeah. we can, it's, it's easy to get passionate about because we feel like we're reducing the number of things that need to be e-waste that needs to be built, created. Um, we, we're uh, helping people get to access to technology at a much lower price point than if they were buying it new. Um, and we're getting, you know, if, if, if someone is going to build a smartphone, we want to make sure that we get every drop of useful life out of it that we possibly can. So mm. it, it, when we see devices come back two or three times, um, you know, we're excited because I mean, that's like kind of two or three devices that didn't need to be manufactured, right? Give people right. access to the world that they want to have access to. Love it. I want to switch gears a little bit to the personal, um, yeah. stories. Fascinating. Thank you for taking us on that trip. Uh, it's probably the most I've laughed in a background story so far. Um, and, and deeply impressed, but I'm, I'm curious about this as a founder of multiple fast growing companies, what does your yeah. schedule look like these days? Um, it's pretty full. I think uh, it, though, I, I mean, you know, we're kind of, I don't know when people may be listening to this, but we're kind of, uh, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic that has like uh, forced people to kind of work primarily from home. So prior to the kind of COVID-19, I was on the road a lot. And so um, it has been kind of interesting for me to kind of transition that schedule to, you know, I'm not, you know, on three planes a week now. I'm, you know, uh, on a ton of Zoom calls, like I'm sure that you guys are. Oh, yeah. So um, that has actually helped me to kind of like do all of the things that I want to do, but kind of keep a relatively well-balanced life with, I've got, you know, two small boys and, uh, you know, dogs and a wonderful wife who allows me to do all this crazy stuff and various kind of personal interests. So yeah, my, my, um, my, my, schedule is pretty crazy. And I try the things that I find that kind of fall out of it are things that are kind of like relative to kind of my personal health and happiness. And so like, I'm always trying to make sure that I'm scheduling time for, you know, whatever I feel like I need to be, doing, whether it's working out, <laughs> eating, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, spending time with my friend. I think like, I'm really good about kind of being very protective of my time with my family. But I found that over like the last 10 years, like, dude, it's like, I, I like, friends look, you know, like I'm like, 
I'm the kind of guy who's like, I'll get a text message and then I'm replying to some friends text messages like a week later and I feel terrible. So I'm like, oh, I gotta, I gotta make time to kind of spend with my friends and kind of, you know, and, uh, and so it, yeah, it, it gets hectic and it is hard to keep all of that stuff, um, you know, where you want it to be. Yeah. So when did you make the transition? Cause I'm sure at some point those things were in your brain as being valuable, yeah. but often would get pushed and pushed by, you know, by business, by meetings, that kind of stuff. When did it start being something that you actively protected uh, in your calendar? Yeah. Uh, well, I think like, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of failure. I um, am not afraid to fail and, you know, certainly have failed a lot in my life. And uh, so it usually is after some, you know, like I, I feel like, that you know, there's a. Uh, I'm I'm very addicted to transition. I like to be moving to the next thing. As soon as I get off a plane, I'm like, it's the Uber. You know what? The, you know, like I'm always think, thinking about what's the next thing. And so, like, it's not uncommon for me to be. You know, I live in Atlanta. Like the you know, at the airport there, they like um, you know the, the plane train pulls up to the last station. Everybody jumps out and you go up this like three story escalator. So it's yeah. not uncommon for me to be like have my back carry on bags and I'll be like running up the escalator to try to get to the top faster for some reason. I don't know, it's just fun. <laughs> but uh, so I I like the yeah you basically get to the top and you're winded. And you're like, man, I used to be able to take these stairs like no problem. And like, yeah. oh, man, I think I might have put on like 30 pounds in the last two years. So it's like usually at points when I feel like uh, I, I've like, you know, something's gone wrong where I'm like, OK, you know, I haven't talked to anybody who I would, you know, is a friend of mine for like four months. Like that's too yeah. much. And my people are starting to get pissed off because I'm not returning their text or call. So it's yeah. usually after there's been some breakdown that I identify yeah. that like, oh man, I, I got to fix this in my life. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, and it's also a lot of times it's like, man, I haven't been home for like two weeks. Like I feel like I came home and my four-year-old is like taller than he was when I left. <laughs> oh man, I gotta, I gotta change something in my life. So um, yeah, it's usually through failure that you kind of identify opportunities to improve. Yeah. Any uh, any specific tactics that you've decided to implement to you know avoid any of those situations? Um, yeah, well, I think like I have two strategies basically. One of them is like being like ridiculously adherent to my calendar uh, and like you know making sure that everything gets on there. And then I have a wonderful assistant who is very protective of my time as well. So uh, you know, basically, kind of like creating this kind of personal culture around myself that like you know like I have like various priorities and like a lot of times like people who may need my time or something's happening it's like well I I'm doing something else during that time and so we got to or or like you know and so I do feel like I have you know like made it a very specific uh, to the people in my circle that like you know there's stuff I've got going on and like you know I'm I'm doing something else right now and uh, and everybody seems to be okay with that and like I, we try to have a culture at Fobio, like where everybody, we, we want the best people that we can find and we want them to do the best work of their career. And we want to create an environment where they feel motivated to do so. So part of it is like, I'm giving myself permission to, to put my family first and like to do and prioritize things uh, that I want to prioritize and then creating this expectation that the people at Fobio or Rodeo or wherever are also doing the same thing. You know, like we want people to be, and, and uh, we have had some great people working at both companies for a long time. Like, you know, we have people who are consistently high performing people who don't burn out for eight, nine years at Fobio and, uh, and people who are accelerating in their job, doing big things, taking on big projects. And I think yeah. like the only way that's possible is if you, if you make room for, you know, your own personal health and, and happiness. 
That's so good. It makes me think of, um, have you ever read the book, uh, The One Thing by Gary Keller? Oh, no, I haven't read it, but I know about it. Yeah, man. It was so helpful for me first as a actual implementable strategy. You know, his basic yeah. theory and premise is that there's always one thing that's more important than everything else, but most yeah. of us treat everything like they're equally important and that's the problem. And yeah. then he, he talked about um, that at all times, most people are juggling at least five balls. So yeah. that'd be their, their professional life, their family, their personal health, their integrity and their friendships. And he said, we treat, we naturally treat four of them like they're made of rubber and yeah. one of them like they're made of glass, which yeah. would be, we, we think work is that, that ball is made of glass. Like I just can't yeah. drop it. And so it yeah. reflects, it reflects on our calendar. If you have to push something off, you're going to push off your rest or you're going to push off a family event. Yeah. And he said, the reality is it's the other way around. He's like, four of them are made like glass and one of them is made like rubber. And he said, in his, yeah. he said, in his, in his experience, you could drop, he said, you never want to drop any of the balls if possible. Yeah but you could drop the professional ball a little more often. It has a recovery to it. Yep. He's like, but if you drop your friendships, if you drop your personal health yeah. or your integrity, he's like, when those things shatter, you can't yep. put them back together. And that was a huge wake up call for me just to go, am I even seeing this right? Like, yeah. you know, am I even yeah. relating to my priorities in a proper way? Um, and it sounds like you're, you're uh, kind of seeing the same thing. And I think a lot of people hold themselves to a stand, like, this is like, there's this residual self-image of like how, you know, you think people perceive you, you know, and like, I think a lot of startup entrepreneurs are trying to kind of like make their residual self-image into this like impenetrable fortress of like excellence, yes. because yeah. they feel like they owe it to whoever they invested in, whether it be friends and families or venture capital or and whatever. grinders. Yes. And so I feel like it was, it took me several years. I, and I, I'm lucky we bootstrapped this. I have maintained control. Um, we've never really done anything, you know, and, you know, like a capital partnership or anything like that. So, uh, you know, it's basically the same group of people that we started with. And so, at a, it, it, but it's still, I felt like in the first probably five years of Phobia, we're just, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. So in the first five years, I felt so beholden to like Denny and Drew, my other, my friends who we started this with, I needed to, we needed to do this and they had given up careers to make this happen. And we, and so I felt this personal pressure that I really had to kind of like forgive myself for and say like, you know, like I'm a human being and I, I had to start making decisions and say like, look, the, uh, me prioritizing my children or my family or my personal time, you know, may have a cost. There may be something that exactly. I miss where there's like a, and I think that's okay. I'm just going to have to yeah. accept that that's okay. And that's a reasonable cost for yeah. my own personal, you know, fulfillment and happiness. And like, I got to say, I think it's been the opposite. I think like, because I gave myself permission, I started kind of, you know, really, you know, allowing everybody like, you know, take your time, do yeah. what you got to do, man. And like, I think like the benefit of that is, you know, people, you know, it's, it's, um, it's less about grinding those hours and more about being creative and having solutions and being able to do stuff and over a long period of time. And so yeah. like the number of people that we haven't had to onboard because we burnt out somebody because we were working them 26 hours a day, um, and, uh, expecting so much from them because they felt this, like this, um, you know, soft pressure to always be perfect. And I feel like the sooner you can like forgive yourself for not being perfect, the better off you are. Yeah. Dude, so I hear a few things and I think I want to stay on this trend. So one, I hear, Hey, make sure you prioritize your personal health. Make sure you prioritize your family and just make sure you prioritize like even just balance for your employees that like, 
we need consistency over the long term is going to get us the best yep. results versus just this like chaotic thing where you like crank up the energy and then you crash. Just yep. having that conversation with a more of an entrepreneur, he's in the startup mode right now. And he's definitely going up that gram. I'm like, Hey man, how close are you to like about to drop? You know, are you yeah, actually having, yeah. are, you, are you still engaged right now? Or are you right on the edge of like the next time we talk, you're about to be done for like, yeah. cause a lot of, we've even talked to a ton of founders, like they've had physical ailments that show up because yeah. of stress. And oh, that's, even yeah. like, you come to this real re, uh, realization where you're going, Oh wow. Like this mental stress that I was putting on myself to perform actually did have physical consequences, which is, is absolutely. And I mean, I think yeah. I, I'm able to track it in you know, like, uh, yeah. I'm like pretty fastidious about like, you know, I like, you know, and it's all Apple watches and all this kind of craziness, yeah. like in, you know, like, uh, uh, the various like Wahoo devices you can get to track your heart rate. But I mean, like, I love kind of tracking my blood pressure, seeing where uh, things are different at, like I have like a, you know, yearly, uh, you know, physical with my LDL panel and HDL and that kind of stuff. So my lipids. Yeah. So, and I, I definitely in years when we have been up against it and like fighting against all odds, all those things are, are much worse than they are. And like yeah. some of it is like, I'm, you know, I'm eating worse and I'm like, like taking less time to work out and like be yeah. some of that, but it, it, you're right. It, it like the stress has like a, and you know, it, it, it has an incredible toll. And like, I think it, it's really difficult for entrepreneurs to accept this idea that things, some things just don't matter, you know? And like, you, there may be like really, it's really difficult to kind of like do the zoom in and zoom out thing to be like, I know like if you zoom in, this thing looks like a tragedy, but if you zoom out, it actually doesn't matter. You know, like uh, we just yeah. lost this thing or we, you know, like we, this product failed or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I think like, that's where like, I think um, everybody is trying to, you know, become the next Jeff Bezos or something like that. They have like a really high bar. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to be like really achievement oriented, which I think, I think is good. Uh, yeah. But the reality is like just surviving is like, <laughs> that's pretty, that, that's yeah. like not many people get to. Yes. Be, uh, you know the stats on that, you're actually yeah. crushing it. Yeah. That was one of the things that really encouraged us was just the the fact founders that are celebrating 10 years is very rare. You know, the fact yeah. that you're still in the seat, still driving the bus, you know, that, that, that is rare. That was one of the things that inspired us to like, Hey, let's get under the hood and have these conversations. Cause those were the yeah. people that inspired us as being able to play that, that long game. Any other, my question for you was going to be like, Hey, any other uh, like warnings or like, Hey, look out for us for other founder CEOs sitting in your seat. They're five, you know, they're five years in They're They're 10 yeah. years in something like, you know, kind of where you're at, maybe a little bit before you, any other warnings that you say, Hey, pay attention to this. Maybe it's related to, to teams, culture, yeah. leading themselves. Any other warnings you'd say, watch out for. I think it's really easy to kind of like succumb to the stress of the job. And certainly as like a CEO, if you're successful in your startup and you, you're, you're, you get to, you're the CEO for five years, which is pretty unusual. I mean, like eight years in a publicly traded company is in, you know, bringing somebody in who's 51 and then they leave when they're 59. That's already pretty devastating. But if you're like 25 and you're still doing it five years later when you're 30, I mean, it's, that's, that is incredibly difficult. And I think like, you know, you, you should definitely like, you know, be feeling pretty good about that. That if that's the case. Uh, but I think um, the hardest thing is to, you know, continually be upgrading yourself because it gets, you've got the same problems all the time. And like, it's difficult to kind of get over these, you know, various like um, 
and whatever business it is, there's, you know, you, you might get to $2 million EBITDA and then you're like, oh, God, I cannot get over that. I don't, I can't figure it out. Or like, we have like one core product. We can't get another thing going at creates some diversity or whatever. So like, I think um, it's really difficult, I think, for startup entrepreneurs to not get really frustrated with their own performance, to get frustrated with what they're, where they are. And I think they tend to burn themselves out, just like the psychology of that situation. And so I, I would say like, constantly be trying to make sure like for me i try to think about it as like kind of like green yellow red like if i allow myself to be like so busy and taking on so much stuff that i'm kind of in the yellow or the red that's invariably when like the meteor comes out of nowhere and i and i, I really do have to buckle down and try to figure out a solution to a, a material problem and so like i always try to keep all like the, you know, if it's a tachometer or something, keep myself in a sustainable state so that I always have a lot to offer. And if I like let myself get into the red for not a really good reason, just because it seems like there's this weird thing going on and I want to get my hands dirty and get down to the engine room. It's like, it's always, that's when something terrible happens and I've got to figure out how to get around it like a COVID-19 crisis or something like that. Yeah. So, um, but I, I would say like, that's the big thing. It's like continually upgrade your skills, give yourself the bandwidth to be able to upgrade your skills. It's like, it's hard when you're running as hard as most startup CEOs are to say, I'm going to take two weeks out and I'm going to do a, a continuing education course offsite where I'm going to go to Stanford and I'm going to sit down and work with people and try to figure out, or I'm going to spend two hours a week with a, um, you know, a performance coach or with somebody who's going to help me me be a better me. And I, I felt like a, a real responsibility to kind of be the leader that Phobio needed as it kind of continued to grow. And I'm glad that I did. I, I think like if I had avoided that and, and there's definitely dark times when you're like, I'm fucking this up so bad. <laughs> I have a problem. Right. Like, uh, it's easy to just to kind of give up and say like, I'm somebody else needs to come in. And it's, it's like, I'm advantaged in that I'm still doing this after 10 years. And I've, I've had a lot of friends and, and uh, colleagues who have, you know, felt like they needed to like dip out and find some professional to come in and run things. And I, I can't say that it's always a good idea. You know, sometimes it is like, and sometimes you have no choice because that's what your board is telling you is going to happen. And like, yeah. I just have been in this really ridiculous position where I never had that, you know, and, yeah. and I feel like I got to earn that and, and, you know, continue being the right CEO for yeah. the whatever moment. For sure. Every day for sure. But I do love that continually upgrading yourself while also not putting so much stress on yourself. Yeah. That you don't actually give yourself bandwidth. Uh, yeah. Boy, I, I think, men in yeah. a very serendipitous, uh, thing happening right now we're talking about balancing professional life with with personal life my wife has called me four times because i just found out she's <laughs> her car is her battery has died in the in the costco parking oh, lot no yeah you she's supposed to be picking my wife my son up from school um so this is the benefit of having a business partner and a guy that we're just talking to about understanding this i'm gonna let him drive yeah, yeah. the rest of this conversation home yes. for us yeah while i Do go it, rescue man. my wife from the costco parking lot uh, <laughs> Take care of number one, man. How crazy is that? We're literally just talking about this and, and prioritizing family. I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to dip out of this podcast right now. Uh, Steven, you're the man, and Jordan's, you're, he, he's, he's in good hands. Um, but all right, guys, I'll talk. To <laughs> wow, Thank that's all, that's amazing. Um, yep, see you later, Drew. Uh, we'll good for him, man. Yeah, I hope we get some good comments on this podcast uh, about this. And uh yeah, hell yeah! Somebody, somebody, go to the Costco in uh, Peachtree City and and save Caroline McClure. Uh, support, support <laughs> them, um, man. So 
Really, really good. The, the continually upgrade yourself. My question was going to stay on that trend of like, Hey, what upgrades did you find for yourself? You know, where did you find some, some gaps and then where did you go for solutions and, and what were some solutions that you found that were, you know, specifically for you? They're like, man, this one, this one was really good. I really felt like this actually took me to another level. I actually did improve as a CEO uh, or even just as a human being, where, where were some of those things for, for you? Well, I mean, for, I was, I was pretty lucky. So, uh, my wife, um, is, uh, also a, uh, she is a life coach, uh, executive coach. So yeah. I have the amount of free coaching that I have received <laughs> from my wife is yeah. probably material to any success yeah, I may have had. So, the best um, definitely thing the like, worst thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because I think it's too easy for like entrepreneurs to just kind of get down in their own little bubble. They and they kind of like are trying to figure this stuff out. I think you know it's like when you're you know laying awake at three in the morning trying to figure out this problem. It's like really difficult to kind of come out of that little like bubble that you're in uh, and yeah. to like lift your head up and like ask for help. And I am the worst. I am the worst at asking for help. I yeah. never really know how to. I just know that I'm like dealing with this like difficult issue, and I'm just yeah, eventually I'm going to figure it out. Um, so uh, yeah, definitely my wife opening my eyes to like how like third party help, whether it be, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, therapy or life coach or performance coaching, these kind of things. So I've always had a coach or multiple coaches even, uh, at various different times. And, and, and I'm always working with somebody to kind of continually improve my skills. I do regular assessments. I just finished a 360 assessment and I'm starting on a kind of new sprint of things that I'm going to be continually working on to improve my skill set. Um, and then it's just like, a lot of it is, you know, like there's some great programs at various different business schools um, that like provide executives, especially entrepreneurial executives, opportunities. I think the Stanford one is great. Um, yeah. There's a MIT and Harvard both have programs that I think are probably kind of dormant right now, but it's a great opportunity. And I think it's really, it seems so um, like, uh, luxurious for some reason that you're going to take a week or two weeks out. Uh, but I mean, there's several like different opportunities where you just a couple days and you go to a, a university campus, you you're with a bunch of people who are just like you and you learn new things that you never would have been exposed to. And I think just even that little break of like, where you're not like, you're not just like, turning off the engines like you're in Cancun or something like that you're you're actually saying like no I'm, I'm going to learn about something new and I'm going to be inspired by something and learn something that I, I would never have learned I think like you have to constantly be doing stuff like that man uh that was really good it's it's interesting like one of the traits that typically I think you even talked about one of the traits too of, of a lot of these drive hard driving you know entrepreneurial types that end up burning themselves out at times but this desire to win, this desire to achieve, this desire to get to the top of the mountain, you know, a competitive drive. A lot of times the, the other side of the coin of, of that great strength, uh, a lot of times can be their desire to control. And yeah. I think that's the thing that gets them stuck in the business where they don't end up working on themselves or work on the business, which essentially is what you're saying is like, hey, that yeah. week. If you don't go for that week, like who else is going to like? Yeah. And it helps like somebody know, like. I'm going to, I'm gone. I'm turning slack off. I'm going to be gone for two weeks, three weeks. And you guys yeah. got to figure it out. And, and like, you have to have that confidence that like, you've got the right team. And if you don't have that team, you got to work on building that team and giving them the, 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 you know, the, you know, I, I do, I'm, I am, um, probably have struggled with control, you know, definitely like all yeah. entrepreneurs do. And, uh, yeah, like the, the less you, the less control you have, it almost feels like the better you can feel. And also like the more yeah. you want to be influencing. And yeah, yeah I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's the progression of really feeling like you have a, you know, there's the job of the CEO, but, and that's, that's actual functional job in the business. But then like, you, Hey, you're a business owner. Like, man, it, it's fun to have a business that you don't have any role in. Like then you've yeah. got like maximized income that's coming to you. That's like, wow, this is, this is pretty nice. Yeah. Um, which is just, and you know, I, I was also, you know, super lucky to have two co-founders who like, and we're yeah. still all involved in the business. Um, we, and at various times, like after big projects or something like that, or after, you know, difficult years, one of us invariably will be kind of in that burnt out state. And I think yeah. we've all like been, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. So it's like not unusual for somebody to be like, dude, I'm going to, you know, throttle down the engines for a couple of months even and like do something different and just get my mind, work on my health or work on my relationship. And then invariably they always come back and it's like, they're, you know, 10 times more effective than they were before. And like these yeah. kind of sabbatical breaks. And because we're all kind of, friends it's easy for us to to you know to say like no no dude do it you know like yeah we'll see you on the other side man and uh yeah that is cool uh and those relationships being there is helpful i was thinking about you you just mentioned teams just a second ago and and finding the right team have there been what, what's been the most challenging like spots for you to to find and fill within within your your space like when you're when you're building out again your leadership team i mean that's definitely the executive team but you know that one layer below like what what challenges have you have you experienced in trying to to fill those positions yeah uh, yeah well, yeah no I, well i'm a i'm a dyslexic so i'm a little bit um yeah. like you know it's a it's a, always trying to find people that i can trust and who can do the job to fair to fill various uh you know gaps in my own kind of like you know personal skill set so yeah. i think the ones that and i'm on a, a couple of boards and i work with a lot of young entrepreneurs and i certainly have found this to be the case i think the two hardest things to hire for are kind of cfo kind of like uh, and, uh, you know, the VP sales probably are like the two hardest to, 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 to hire for. Yeah. Um, and, and it's like, you know, I think like, you know, today phobia has the best team that's ever had, but yep. you know, those, that, those are the two seats where it's like either you outgrow them the fastest, or it's hard to find somebody that, that you, you know, like, especially like, and I got this advice from somebody early on in my career, uh, but basically this kind of VP sales spot, it's like hard to find salespeople who are uh, going to, you know, be really good at sales, but also fundamentally be kind of have a, a, t a team mindset. Uh, you know, yeah. like usually people who are really good at sales are, are also really good at lining their own pockets. And so it's like having that kind of corporate, you know, a focus and like kind of team mindset. Um, and then I think like CFOs, it's like, it's really hard to find somebody who is the caliber that you need in a high growth situation, you know, a year from today, who's willing to help you today. Uh, and find somebody that, and then also somebody who's, you know, like uh, we've had some great fractional CFOs over the years. And I think that's yeah. been fantastic where we can get somebody when we need them, th that is the right caliber. Cause it's like, it's hard to just kind of like uh, to uh, green grass up a CFO out of a, you know, your personal yeah. network. Yeah. yeah. I love that. So you answered the question on the CFO. I was going to say, you know, okay, you know, what are some strategies you do? The, the fractional CFO, I think is just fantastic. Yeah. Great vision. Uh, actually we interviewed a guy just in a private mastermind and he, he did something really similar. We've highlighted on the podcast one time, uh, prior, but it was, it was fantastic. He ends up finding a guy, uh, had a big four background, but is, was in the back end of his yeah. career, really knew tax well. And he specifically was looking for somebody who really knew tax well in his current situation. And the guy just kind of just did the role for like, That's awesome. was on a fractional, uh, fractional basis to and just kind of 
the opportunity for fractional executives or, or kind of any fractional teams even. And like we've relied, you know, like Phobia has relied really heavily on um, the We Are Rosie guys to deliver, yeah. hey, we're, we, we got a new product. We know I need to put a brand and marketing plan strategy around it. We need five people that are extremely valuable for like three months, but then we don't know after that. And so like there's never been a better time uh, to be kind of engaging of these. You know, I think like the like, uh, professional consulting model has changed so much over the last kind of five, 10 years that it's like, it's so much more flexible and, and you can get, you know, people who kind of fit in your team very easily. And yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. That's cool. Any thoughts on the sales thing? Cause I do think that's like any, any advice that you've given in terms of how to find the person. Cause one of the things I would have would also assume is like finding somebody who like they've been good at sales, but now they got to like believe in your product and learn your story and yeah. get behind your culture and you've been driving sales the way that you want to. And now you're having to entrust that to somebody else. Uh, any thoughts in, in terms of how you've helped people make the right selection there? Any things to even watch out for? Uh, yeah. Well, I think like any CEO has got to be selling a lot. And I think most kind of startup CEOs, certainly bootstrap startup CEOs, oftentimes get tired of that, that, you know, like uh, it's, it's, it's the thing that wears you out the fastest. And so everyone's always trying to outsource the sales. And it's like, I have to break it to people all the time that I'm mentoring. It's like, um, you can. It's like <laughs> you're gonna have to keep doing it. You just have to find ways that you can make it sustainable. And so I'm always looking for partnership. You know, like somebody that I can trust and work with, and who kind of like understands the kind of go to market strategy and is willing to kind of be more of a marketer than a sales guy. Um, yep. And uh, I think like that that seems to work really well. And I think yep. it really comes down to that being comfortable with and being able to trust somebody like somebody who has a lot of integrity and who you can believe in is really difficult. And I, and I think like anybody who is interviewing anywhere is doing the best that they possibly can to kind of represent themselves in the, in the best possible light. And, you know, effective salespeople are the best at doing that. <laughs> so yeah, you have to be the worst thing. To, you almost yeah. like, I feel like a lot of interviews now, I mostly, you know, in, uh, you know, sometimes they've been interviewed with other people or whatever before they, I've talked to them. So a lot of times it's just me being like, Hey, so what's up, man? Like, how's it? Yeah. Like what just, I kind of feel like just having a conversation. So you're going to get a feel for kind of who they are. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. And I think that trust factor, having a partner and somebody that you can really work with and believes in you and you believe in them is like, is the yeah. only way that you can get that, that kind of, a sales executive role to really function uh, and yeah. be part of your top team. Man, that's good. Uh, I want to switch to like team because we're because we're on that track of team. But just thinking about company culture. So, talk to me about uh, Phobio company culture and you know how would you describe it? And then you know what intentional things do you do to to kind of cultivate it too? Yeah, I do. I think it, it requires a lot of cultivation. Um, I feel like it's a, it's always a bit of a garden. You know, you have to kind of be actively promoting yeah, the things that you want and, and removing the things you don't. Um, so I think, you know, we pride ourselves on kind of being like a, a merit-based, uh, you know, um, uh, like open and transparent culture, you know, where we're trying to create equity for everyone. And, and I feel like being a startup entrepreneur, especially a bootstrap entrepreneur, you know, I feel like, you know, this is probably a job that no one would have ever hired before at any point. Uh, but I yeah. have been successful and like we've created a lot of equity. Um, and so like, I'm always trying to kind of create that opportunity and we want to have a culture and we understand that this is like an environment that we have to create that, um, uh, you know, where people feel comfortable doing the best work of their career, they feel motivated to do the best work of their career, and they have the opportunity to do the best work of their career. And like, ultimately, you know, like we want Phobia to be a place where people work and always feel like that was the best job they ever had. 
um, regardless of whether they become an alumni and move on to go to do other things. And so, I mean, that, those are kind of like broadly our focus. Um, and I think you really have to hire a team uh, and we focus a lot on culture. And I think a lot of times in startups, culture is just basically like, hey, we have like a beer keg in the refrigerator and right. we have like a foosball table. But I think you really have to boil culture down to, no, we really want to do the best for everybody. And we want yeah. to have everybody's career track, you know, in mind. And we want to do what is best for everybody here in a sustainable way, creating environments and creating a culture where people can feel comfortable, you know, yeah. in their own skin, which I think is like shockingly something that isn't, doesn't happen everywhere. Yeah, no, I think it is funny that for the most part, the majority of the people that we've talked about, we, we are making the joke that like the beer cart are perks, right? And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perks are good, but if if you tie that to your culture, you know, the scooter that you allow people to drive around, like that's not it. Now there's typically a culture below that that's like yeah. the reason why you got the scooters or the foosball tables. Like, yeah. and that's the thing that's much more interesting because it would to me it's going, okay, well, how does that help you drive revenue or or increase yeah. your brand or increase the team's, you know, psychological safety so they can continue to perform well? Uh so it, again, they could be potential symptoms that are good, but it is interesting like you do know those are perks right those are that's not culture <laughs> yeah exactly uh, and perks are great like hey people yeah. you know your employees like perks uh what's what's like your philosophy on on kind of creating high performing teams i want to think about like the organizational structure for a second but specifically hey when you're when you're bringing the team together so not your team yeah. executive team but like a, a project team when i'm bringing them together yeah. like what's your philosophy on on how to create a team that can really you know kick ass doing what you want them to do well, I think like, you know, you, you need to have kind of open and honest communication. You need to have people that are going to come together and they're going to kind of, I think in any high performing team, there's going to be a lot of friction between the various different components on the team. And so like you need a group of people. I mean, this is like, I, I look at it like NASA would look at astronauts, you know, like you need like, uh, you know, when they're sending somebody up, it's a three man module. They're going to go to the moon. They need a really capable pilot, you know, and they need, you know, there's a, they, people need to be able to do math and there's some like basic kind of like um, gating skills that are required, but then it really yeah. just comes down to putting a team together that can be in a capsule by themselves under the most stressful conditions for a week. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, the, and I feel like it's really, yeah. It's like, can these people like live together? And like when they, when they bump into each other or when one frustrates the other, are they going to be able to kind of work through those situations quickly or just be like, you know, and I think it's like, we try to create um, uh, kind of uh, uh, frameworks for be able to give like, like uh, honest feedback. And like, sometimes it's hard to be polite in those situations. And everybody has to be, uh, we, Drew, Danny, and I were very lucky and that we were able to step on either each other's toes and be like, oh, hey, whoa, yeah, I know I just totally yeah. screwed you there. My apologies, you know, and get over it really quickly. And I think it's this, um, you know, in this kind of like fail fast world, a lot of entrepreneurs know that they need to be failing at stuff and going to kind of like iterate and get beyond yeah. it. And I think you kind of have to have that, uh, that kind of same um, philosophy around your interpersonal relationships where you need to be with a group of people where you can, it's not, everyone's not being super polite. And you know, you're, you're in, you have to be able to say like, dude, I just up in your toes. I just, I recognize that. Yeah. Or I hear you saying that I stepped in your toes. <laughs> you know, we're all moving quickly in this one direction. Yeah. I think everybody can be okay with that. Yeah. One of the things I would celebrate you that I, uh, you at least communicated. And again, it's just a podcast interview, <laughs> but one of the things that you seem to be good at is, is like a high tolerance for grace. Like yes. it seems yeah. to be a good range where it's like, I don't even imagine if we were to work together that like, if I did step on your toes that we couldn't have the conversation and oh, almost yeah. like that, 
that that's even a culture thing to go, Hey, you know, failure is okay. We're not gripping this thing so tight so that you have to be perfect. In fact, that's not actually what we want to go for at all. We want to go for the opposite of that. And I think to me, it's actually not hard to imagine that being involved in your teams because I think you just communicate that. That's just who you kind of emit uh, as who you are, which is something that I would definitely celebrate for, for just being able to to talk with you over this hour. Um, Yeah, thank you. Man, uh, so last question before lightning round. Okay. Tell me about uh, just what books would you recommend? What books you're reading right now? Uh, it doesn't even yeah. have to be books in these days. It's like media. It could be documentaries. It's just anything yeah. that you're like, I'm loving this. I'm consuming this. This is what I'm learning. Yeah, I think like probably any startup entrepreneur needs to read of uh, the hard thing about hard things. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, uh, I think it's uh, Andrew Horowitz, Horowitz. Um, and then I love like the Toyota way for like the Kaizen and yes. kind of, like process knowledge. I love that book. Um, I like a lot of the, you know, uh, the Jim Collins books are great. I think everybody reads those like good to great and stuff. Um, but um, I think... Uh, I mean, now I feel like I'm spending so much of my time, like listening to podcasts. Like I think like all the Scott Galloway stuff, you know, whether it's the pivot podcast with Vox media and Kara Swisher uh, or the prof G podcast. And I mean, he, he actually has a great one. I was one in the first, um, um, uh, sprint that he did in like the prof G, uh, kind of like, you know, brand marketing workshop that they did. Yeah. Uh, they just started doing these things was like a week. It was fantastic. Learned a ton. Uh, wow. but yeah, so I would definitely highly recommend that. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, That's it's awesome. like, yeah, that and just like, I would encourage everybody, you gotta read a lot. And I think we all get super into like, I remember I was thinking one time, I was like, man, you know what? And this is like maybe dating myself a little bit, but I was like, man, I think I've read every single post on Gizmodo for like the last five years. <laughs> I was like, nothing has gone past that I haven't seen. And I think like, you kind of have to reach out beyond that. And, you know, like I make it a point to like, try to read things like The Economist and I like, Wall Street Journal, New York Times every day to just try to like broaden my understanding of the world because like it never fails that there's going to be something that's happening in the, you know, the way that like De Beers is auctioning off diamonds in South, you know, in like the African market, diamond markets, like the way that they do it is really fascinating. And it's like, it's, it's really easy to translate that to kind of some of the stuff that we do. Uh, yeah. And so like you find all of these lessons that are learned well outside of our industry or technology yes. or whatever. And I think certainly for like software startups, it's like super easy to be like, you know, really um, focused on like one specific thing and never look yeah. outside it. It does seem like that's where the innovation is going to come, right? You've got to yeah. keep your eyes outside and you find out one unique idea that allows you to innovate. That that's seems right. to be a good scientific way to go about it instead of, you know, just hoping that it just falls out of the air that you're just so smart one day that you just figure it out. You know, I, I think that's, that's really good. Um, all right, man, let's hit the lightning round. Uh, lightning right. round, five right. questions for you. Question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, uh, what would it be? Man, um, uh, you're worth it <laughs> and it's okay yeah. to fail. I think like everybody, I think is so fair, afraid that, you know, that they're going to screw up and that's going to be like in their permanent record. And it's just not the case. Yeah. Man, uh, that's a great one. Uh, number two, single best advice you've gotten about growing your business and the worst advice. Oh, I think probably the single best advice is put, uh, you know, remember what number one is. And that's basically like putting, putting your family and your friends in a higher priority than the things you do have to do at work. So, uh, you know, remember your number one and always put it first. Love that. Uh, worst advice? Oh, man. God, I've gotten so much bad advice. Most of it is like so tactical. Um, I think a lot of it is oriented around control. 
how to like keep control of your organization, like how to essentially intimidate people into doing what you want, anything related to like demand, command and control. There's a lot of people who really believe in that stuff, but I don't know that any of them are very successful. Yeah. Oh man. I'm trying to think about, I was just listening. I was listening to an audio book talking about command and control. Sorry, audience. I'll figure it out some other time and put in the show notes, but it was just talking about command and control. Like it actually did make sense for a season when we were manufacturing lines you know, frontline worker where you literally did need to tell them specifically exactly what to do. But we're in a creation economy now where we actually need everybody to be creative. Command and controls is not going to work. And and org structures are are beginning to follow that as as well. Um, But yeah, the command and control, that's that's a good one to to highlight. Uh, Number three, what causes you the most worry leading your organization? Uh, I mean, I think I'm most worried that I'm not going to be the right guy for whatever happens next. And so I'm continually trying to upgrade my skill set so that I'm the leader that Fobio deserves at whatever point in time that is. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one, man. Thanks for for being transparent and sharing on that one, too. Uh, What's your BHAG? What's the big, hairy, audacious goal uh, for you and for Fobio? Man, so uh, I mean, well, I think the astronaut program is now kind of outside of my view, but that could have been at some, at some point in my past. Yes. Um, so I think like I want to continue my, my big, hairy, audacious goal uh, for personally is is to keep doing this, to keep doing startup stuff, whether I'm like actively like starting something or uh, or, you know, like engaged in startup culture and doing startup things and helping empower entrepreneurs for the rest of my life. And I think, you know, if I can continue to encourage, I mean, entrepreneurism is essentially like a endangered species. And I think yeah. it's like, I think our world broadly suffers from that. So staying mm-hmm. in startups uh, somehow uh, and encouraging them. And then I think our, our goal is, you know, essentially, I think we see ourselves as the Amazon of trade in at some point in the future. Uh, you know, where yeah. you can kind of trade in anything, you know, for anything kind of thing, you know, like uh, get instant credit for um, all manner. And uh, we're kind of like the guy behind the guy. We're kind of empowering brands uh, to do that. And I, and I think, you know, we uh, see that going way beyond the kind of commercial electronics that, uh, that wow. we're in today. That's awesome. That's cool. Uh, number five. So if you could hop in a DeLorean, you go back to the past. Uh, you get to shout one thing to yourself from the driver's side window. <laughs> uh, okay. When are you going back and uh, what are you saying? It'd probably be something like get confident, stupid. <laughs> I would probably say, you know, like, you know, uh, give myself permission to fail. Uh, and, and like, also like, you know, I think if I could, if I could uh, reassure myself that for whatever reason, uh, I, you know, I, in the future, you know, I, I have been able to figure it out. I think like probably in the early days, I felt like I was an imposter. And I think like if I could somehow relieve myself of that anxiety 20 years ago, uh, I think that'd be fantastic. Man, that is awesome. Uh, Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for uh, for sharing your brilliance and just sharing just who you are, man. Uh, I think the the capacity for grace, I think that's a cool thing just to even find about you during this this time. And I love that you've been able to, to build it with friends. Uh, one yeah. of the fun visions that Drew and I had when we were when we were bringing it together, when we thought about, you know, stop doing the individual practice thing. Let's try to actually build a firm for our own little startup was we wanted to build yeah. things with friend, have fun and kick ass, you know, and that if we could do yeah. those three things, we said, you know, that would be worth, you know, that would be worth failing over. Yeah. And so probably man, isn't a better mandate than that, man. That's pretty good. No. Uh, so great job. I, I feel that kindred spirit with you on that one. And uh, man, thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you, dude. This has been one of the most entertaining interviews of my life. So I appreciate that. Yes. Thanks, Steve. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.